brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Com, on time, on target. So I actually texted Rob before he was coming in for Power of Thought because, uh, full disclosure, Harley Davidson is a sponsor of, of what we're doing here at SoftRep.com, and they were kind of curious because they're fans of yours. Like, does Rob drive motorcycles? Is he a Harley guy? And you told me that, in fact, you are. Yes, I, uh, I used to own a Softail, and I love the Harley. Uh, it's, it's my favorite bike. It's pretty much everyone that rides is their favorite bike. We would actually have a, an unofficial club that we would ride on the weekends in Virginia Beach. A lot of guys from uh, the command, a lot of guys from other commands, different services. And it just seems like a really good, uh, it's a good way to, it's great camaraderie and it's really good for decompression. You know, it's, it's, it's good and you can, can pretend you're a badass bunch of bikers for a, for a few hours <laughs> every weekend. And I didn't the it. hell, like, not to go dark, but the Hells Angels were a group of former like military riders. I right? think they that, were, weren't they? That kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I've, to, I've heard a few things about them. Yeah, yeah. I, I, but know. the bike. I mean, ever since I first joined the Navy, the Harley was huge, like part of like military culture. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. Cool. It was a Harley. That's yeah. just that's what you wrote. Unless you got a custom chopper made to whatever you wrote. I mean, the Harleys. That was, that was my favorite, definitely. Yeah, just I mean, it's straight up Americana. I it mean, is. It is. A, it's American. That's what it is. Yeah, and in a day and age where a lot of things are manufactured over in China and Asia, it's it seems like mm-hmm. that's one of the last kind of no doubt American it legacy. Is. It is. It's still a badass. It's something bike. you could see riding down the street with an American flag on the back, and that just makes sense. Yeah, <clears throat> definitely hear you coming. was there ever like a mission that you went on where you got home and this was something you looked forward to doing and and experiencing true freedom it i was always looking forward to getting home because we actually had uh overseas the jin house those little crappy bikes and we called them the jihads because it looked like jihad the jihad (laughs) 500s and just riding those crappy little things it's like to the chow hall or even on missions we take them it's like i cannot wait to get home and get on a real real bike and hear it here and just a thump the sound of it starting and yeah so there you have it I, I can't think of a stronger endorsement than the the man who shot bin laden um also rides a harley absolutely Davidson. there you go <laughs> that's about as fucking american as that's you get man yeah jesus love it that was rob o'neill that you just heard big harley davidson enthusiast which is really cool because what we're doing this episode is we're putting together some of the best moments on this show from guys who have been there, done that, and seen combat, and compiling them, and it's presented by Harley-Davidson, and we really love what they're doing. You're riding in a formation outdoors with your brothers and sisters on a mission to cover some ground. There's a reason getting on a Harley-Davidson motorcycle feels right to those who serve. Check it out at h-d.com backslash American Heroes, Harley Davidson, all for freedom, freedom for all. Once again, that's h-d.com backslash 
American heroes. Uh, with that, we're going to get into some more Rob O'Neill, and this is him talking about the now very well-known Bin Laden raid and what better way to hear what went down from the man himself. I do have to wonder with the UBL raid, just getting back to what sure. we said before, where you said, you know, never would you think that you'd be the guy on the raid in SEAL Team 6. Like, what do you credit that to? Of all the people who went in the military, people who go into special operations, you get to be on that team. Like, what are the chances oh, of it? And what, what do you think is oh, the reason that you were chosen to be a part of a it? A lot of it is just timing. A lot of it would happen to be the, we happen to be in a situation where they would pick that team. Because we had a team overseas that was already deployed. If they stop doing missions every night and started training on something else, maybe someone will notice. We had a team that was on standby in Virginia Beach, but if, they, if they're not home, then the, the wives will be like, well, they're doing something. But we were on, a, we were on our training part, the four months, so it, we are supposed to leave town and train, so we just happened to be there. Uh, I, happened, you know, I, I never took any leave, uh, any, sorry, any shore duty in the Navy. I was deploying the entire time, so I got to a spot of a team leader at this command, and I, I had a... I don't know, 11 or 12 deployments, maybe 11 at this time, and just happened to be in a spot where I'd done well, and I'm a se- they wanted senior guys. They wanted, they wanted redundancy. Everyone needs to be a sniper. Everyone needs to be a breacher. Everyone needs to know this and this. So in case something happens, we can, we, we, we can still hit everything that we have. And uh, so I got picked to be uh, part of the team, and it was, it was just, it was, um, you know, it was never laid out either. Like, you're going to go here, and you're going to be the point man, and you're going to shoot Bin Laden. It was never that, because we had a perfect plan that just went completely to shit, like every plan. Like, we were training. We had some of the best tactical thinkers coming up with the plan to kill Bin Laden, and we had the perfect plan. And towards the very end, the boss said, all right, what's the worst thing that could happen? I think the youngest guy in the room said, well, the helicopter could helicopter, crash. Yeah. And, and, like, everyone looked at him, and he's like, well, I mean, let's talk about that for, like, 30 seconds. That happened. Yeah. Wow. And so that put me in a spot. I was going to go on the roof, and our plan was to jump onto the, the balcony and take shots through the window because the, the female analyst, um, the kick-ass woman that found him, said he would be there. So we were going to pinch him. You know, these guys come here, they come here, and we're going to go down. But we landed on the outside because that pilot saw him crash. He just let us out. And we made our way in, and I was lucky there because now I'm in a spot where other guys are already engaged in combat, and so I am not doing anything, and I have a front-row seat to the greatest mission. So I'm just watching it. We're going through the house. I'm like eight guys back. I'm watching guys do their stuff, like the breaching, like from a kick to mechanical to explosive. And everyone knows the whole house can blow at any time. It's supposed to. Bin Laden's going to, we're all going to die in here, but no one's nervous. Everyone's just, you know, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. I'm watching them, and it's just awesome. Like I'm seeing this up front. And I remember just being so proud of the guys, but then just thinking, God, they're fucking cool. Look at this. So, yeah, we, I mean, the woman told us we'd run into Khalid, and she's like, when you see Khalid, which you will, that's the last line of defense, and the big guy's next. So we yeah. saw the, the point man take care of Khalid. We kind of went to the second floor, and then that's where everyone split off because you got to clear the threats, the unknowns before you advance, and it's me and one dude, and he's looking up the stairs, and he's just talking. He doesn't know it's me, but he, he can, I've got a hand on him, so, you know, just positive contact. And he started saying, hey, we got to go. We got to get up those stairs, man. Yeah. We got to go. And, and I remember I, I can close my eyes and see it. And thinking, specifically thinking, this isn't bravery. We're going to die. We're going to blow up. I'm tired of thinking. Let's go. So I squeezed him. We went up, and he, he moved this curtain and saw what he thought were suicide bombers. He jumped on them to absorb the blast, right? And I, I saw that and thinking, that's the bra- I don't know how he doesn't have a Medal of Honor still. Yeah. Amazes me. And it happened so fast. He did that. And my tactics just told me to turn right. So I turned right. There's Bin Laden standing there. So I shot him three times, and it was over. 
And I moved the wife. I saw his three-year-old kid. And, and I remember as a father just thinking, this, this kid's got nothing to do with this. And I picked him up and sat him. Because we're the good guys. That's what we did. We yeah. all do that. And other SEALs are coming in. And I, then I kind of st- I'm standing there. And I, can, I heard him take his last breath. And, and, and other SEALs are coming in the room. And one of my buddies came up. And he goes, uh, hey, are you good? And I went, um, yeah, uh, what do we do now? And yeah. he said, well, now we go find the computers, man. We've done this hundreds of times. And yeah. I went, oh, shit, you're right. I'm back. And he goes, yeah, you just killed Bin Laden, bro. And that was it. I mean, it was never going to be crazy. me. It was never, you know, but, it, but like I said, you know, any Ranger would have done that. Any, any, any Delta guy, if I can, I don't think I can say that either. Um, he went left, I go right. That's just how it works. Any, any, I just, I, I got there because my guys were so cool to get me into that spot. And that's all it is. And that's like the life of the operator. Here's another excerpt. This is Nick Irving on an earlier episode uh, discussing Army Sniper School and Ranger Battalion. Check it out. When I went through Army Sniper School, that was, since I want to say bumped it to five weeks. Uh, yeah, I want to say it was five weeks when I went through. And maybe it was uh, maybe 70% classroom, you know, death by PowerPoint and stalking shit, and then you had 30% of actual shooting, and I mean, it was a gentleman's course for what it was. You learned a lot, but I don't think that it compared to anything to what you guys went through, the Marines, or anything like that. It's just a, you know, basic course to get someone to understand the, you know, mill relation formula, win formula, moving targets, and, you know, that's pretty much, just to get a baseline, you know, comprehending that, and you learn your really, I guess, sniper stuff when you get to, if you want to go to SODIC, if you're in the special operations community or, you know, that's where you actually get the, I guess, sniper um, skill set, strong skill set, yeah. And you guys have a pretty good, from what I hear in the in the Ranger Regiment, and, and I want to be clear on that too because we get a lot of questions from listeners. Um, in the Army, you can go to Ranger school and get your, your tab and then go back to your regular army unit. But that doesn't mean you're a ranger. I mean, if you're a ranger, you're going to battalion, right, Nick? Like, I don't, if, oh, yeah. Maybe you can, you can explain it better than I can, because people all the time like, oh, my buddy's a ranger. He does this. I'm like, no, he's, he's not a ranger. He's been through the school and has exactly. the tab, but he's not, it's way different. And the reason I bring it up is because I know if you're, you're a true ranger at the regiment, you guys have a pretty good sniper program in-house too oh yeah it's um completely different uh from being just a tab ranger i get the question a lot too and you're talking to someone's like oh i'm a ranger too and oh look what battalion where were you stationed at i was with the 82nd i'm like no dude different 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 deal but yeah. um <clears throat> you go in for an option 40 contract and you know, that's your ranger contract and i'm pretty sure they've cut down on it from the guys who you know ask me questions and stuff like that they've really cut back on who they're taking in for the Ranger Regiment, um, just, I guess, because of bu- uh, budget cuts and or who knows what. Um, but anyways, yeah, you sign up, you go to recruiting, you ask for your Option 40 contract, and once you get that, you go through the pipeline of, you know, OSIT, which is a combination of your basic and infantryman AIT. Um, you graduate that, go on to Airborne School, <clears throat> which is, I want to say, three, what is it, Brandon, three weeks? I think it's three or four weeks. Airborne. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I forget. Three weeks. Was... Yeah, three weeks there? Yeah, I think so. He had three yeah. weeks and uh, another recovery weekend. Man, I love okay. thinking 
I had a blast in Airborne, man. I mean, we were a bunch of SEAL, you know, fuck-ups just causing a bunch of problems for those black hats, but it was a blast, oh, yeah. man. I mean, we were in such good shape coming out of Buds and going to that Airborne and just having yeah, a black hat for us, man. <laughs> you guys were in, yeah. you know, tip-top physical shape, and, yeah. you know, we did, do, you know, <clears throat> basic training, and that was pretty much it, so we had the hard hard times. But uh, after you finish up Airborne school, you go to... I went through RIT program, which was pretty much just a beat-down success. We started off with a little over 100 guys and graduated seven guys. And That's the Ranger NDOC program, right, RIP? That's what that stands for? Yep. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And um, think, well, they changed it. Ne- What's that? Uh, I was going to say, I think Eric and I, the hardest time we had in in jump school was figuring out what to do with that E1 Army chick in your barracks room. <laughs> <laughs> at zero six, at zero six hundred. <laughs> hey, oh, no, <laughs> no, here we go again. Yeah, sorry. Georgia, Georgia. Hey, just, make sure, just make sure Belize is not listening to this. Eric. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just told her and the kids to tune in. Daddy's on the radio. It's going wrong <laughs> right now. Yeah. yeah, you're fucked. No, man. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What, I don't know. Eric's a good guy, man. I don't, I saw him like once. That was it. But um. After that, man, we went to, uh, what was it, RIP? Well, they changed RIP to RASP now. I think that's, geez, I want to say five or eight weeks. I really don't even know what RASP is, um, the timeline on that is. But you get more of a, I guess, learn how to do the kind of stuff you do once you're in battalion, like demolitions and, you know, a little bit of op order plans and stuff like that. We didn't get that training until we got to battalion a few years ago when it was still RIP. And, um... Once you get to battalion, you have this little six-month probation time frame where you're always, you know, under observation. You can get kicked out at any time. Um, and you can get kicked out for 10 years in regiment, you know, with DUI or something like that. But you do your six months, and then you deploy. But you don't really do much on your first deployment. Kind of observe and watch how the guys work and how missions go down and, you know, shit like that. Then... You go on to Ranger School, which is 62 days. Um, it was somewhere around 70-something for me, 70 or 80-something. I ended up recycling one of the phases. And then after that, the doors open up, and if you graduate, uh, you go to sniper school. Uh, you can go to sniper school or section if you want to. It's about 14 guys in that section. You can go to recce or dog, and um, you do your pre-sniper, I guess, selection process before you get into sniper section of battalion and they ship you off to all these different schools train you up and i mean geez i did quite a few schools man uh when i was in i'm not sure how what the budget cuts are you know they still do that but it's fucking it was a good deal man here's a message for those who run toward the action feel the need for speed like the rush of adrenaline. A Harley-Davidson motorcycle lets you unleash that part of yourself any day of the week. Harley-Davidson, all for freedom, freedom for all. And we got such stellar feedback from our interview with Delta Force's Mike Vining. Uh, And this is a great excerpt from that show. This is Mike talking about what it means to be an EOD tech during Vietnam, what goes into it, and some of the crazy things that he saw. I was signed to the 99th Ordnance Detachment EOD at Phuc Vinh. Uh, it was also known as Camp Gorvad. It was later changed to Camp, 
Casey, named after General Casey of the 1st Cav, who died, uh, I think, in May of 1970, his plane, his helicopter, and they ran into a mountain and everybody on board his helicopter was killed. So they named Fire Support Base after him. As for the job, we would, um, we were like a fire department. We had a 10-man unit. Uh, we would wait for the call to come in. Some unit would request, usually through the brigade, First, we supported for all of 1st Divi- Cavalry Division's operations uh, in the northwest corner of 3 Corps. We supported a little bit of 1st Infantry Division in our area and 199th Light Infantry Brigade. So anybody called us, they had a booby trap. They came across an enemy bunker complex that was booby-trapped. Before they would move in, they would call us. Um, If they found some tunnels and stuff that proved too dangerous, like in one case, uh, this office lieutenant went into a tunnel and there was booby-trapped. He was actually blown out of the tunnel, uh, grenade, and uh, wounded in in medevac. So after that, nobody would go into the tunnel. So then we went into the tunnel. Um, you know, if they find dead ordnance out in the field, like a 500-pound bomb, it didn't go off. They call us, and we'd get rid of it. And you know, the enemy cache sites, we'd dispose of it. Any pro- any problem like that with ordnance, they would give us a call, and we would fly in. Normally, in two-man teams. Uh, they, they would provide us transportation. We'd go to the helicopter pad, get on the helicopter, go in, link up with the team, sometimes have to walk into the site and do the mission, then fly out and go to the next mission. Most missions just were day missions, but uh, some of the missions were as long as a week. And that must have been a pretty interesting experience as a young man that you know, you suddenly have a lot of responsibility put on you and you're working. It sounds like just you and one other guy. It, yes, we operated just uh, usually in two-man teams. Depending, you know, we might request more EOD. Uh, depending on the size of the operation, we'd ask for help. But normally we would uh, fly in. We would have three days worth of food and water that we would carry I carry two haversacks, one to two haversacks of explosives, so either 20 to 40 pounds of C4 priming systems and everything, and we'd fly in. If we needed anything more than that, the unit that was on the ground would have to supply us with more explosives, bring it in. And after um, after your year in Vietnam, you know, when you returned home, well, could you talk a little bit about coming back home? And I, I take it you wanted to remain in the military, no, I didn't. Oh, really? <laughs> I um, Vietnam War was winding down when I got. I was asked to extend, uh, and uh, I was asked to do some work, classified work in Cambodia, where you'd wear civilian clothes. But everything was winding down, so I didn't think the military was for me. So I actually was discharged after ah, Vietnam. Ah, okay. Uh, and I was out for two and a half years. Uh, went to Michigan. I worked for its company that uh, b- uh, was a press operator, building, stamping out body parts for Ford cars in Michigan. Um, but after two and a half years of doing that and seeing that this job was really a, 
you know, going nowhere. It's a good paying job, but really I wasn't satisfied. Uh, I tried to go back in. And this is, of course, after Vietnam. You know, the Army was downsizing. At first they said um, I couldn't go back into the Army. They said they weren't taking anybody. But then when I checked later, they said that I could go back in, but it'd have to go back in as EOD. And I said, that's great. <laughs> so I went back in in October of 73, and I was assigned to the 63rd Ordnance Detachment EOD at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Uh, I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about your friend, um, Ken Foster, who passed away and yeah. what, you know, what today the public knows quite well as an IED at that time, I uh, you know I imagine it, it wasn't something that was in the public consciousness the way it is today. No, it wasn't. Uh, one of the things you do in EOD is you do uh, Secret Service VIP support. You know, uh, all today all four services provide support for bomb disposal support for Secret Service. The military does. You know, if they go into any place, uh, a building. That he's got, there's a speaking engagement. It's the military EOD that work with the Secret Service that go in and help clear that area and then stand by in case something's discovered. So 1976, I spent the, that year basically on the road doing Secret Service support, the presidential campaign of 1976. It was in Quincy, Illinois in October of 76. Uh, I don't recall the exact date, but we were, Senator uh, Bob Dole was speaking in Quincy, Illinois. He was running for Ford as Ford's vice president. So we, he was speaking at the high school. And uh, so after his speaking engagement was done uh, that evening, Ken Foster and I, we were working as a two-man team, we went to, out to eat for supper. And while we were eating, we heard explosions going off in town. So they, the county sheriff, the Secret Service, and another two-man EOD team responded to these, the explosion site, one at a bridge. Uh, there was uh, four explosions at this um, – well, it was three explosions at this uh, Colt compressor factory. And um, they just went and – responded, you know, just seen a lot of damage at the bridge and at the factory. But there, at that time, there was no threat called in. There was just these explosions going off in town. So the next morning, uh, Senator Doe was leaving by charter plane at the airport. We searched all the luggage and stuff that was going on the charter plane. And uh, while we were doing that, a bomb threat came in against Senator Dole at the airport and so but we knew we had searched everything we did a good job so we said there's nothing more here to do so they got on the airplane and took off and everything was fine the county sheriff asked us to go out after we got released from secret service support to go out and look at the damage and just to give our opinion of what took place th that night <clears throat> so we went out there and at the Colt Compressor Factory, the fire they were doing continued the search. The fire department was, and then they found another bomb that had not gone off. It was IED, or back then it was just a homemade bomb. It was several sticks of dynamite, a large uh, alarm clock, uh, six volt battery. 
So they took a Polaroid of it, and where the bomb was actually placed in a trailer of a truck. The whole trailer of this truck was a compressor. That's what they made at the factory. So um, they took a picture. Then they closed the sliding door on the bomb. And then when we got there, we were told that they had found a bomb that had not exploded. And then we saw look at the Polaroid picture. But you had to walk down between these parked truck trailers, narrow. And uh, so Ken Foster said he'd go down and do a recon. The Illinois arson inspector was there. He'd, he wanted to go down and look at it, too. They were just going down for a recon. I was getting the tools ready in case we have to do something. So Ken went down. The arson inspector stayed out a little ways. Ken went down, opened up the sliding door. And we don't know exactly what happened, but we believe when he opened up the sliding door, he looked at the alarm clock. And what they had done is took a screw, put it through the face of the clock, and so it was a when very one simple. of the hands on the clock hits the screw, yeah. it connects the detonator. Yeah, I can't and imagine how scary that must be. Simple Just... time delay. Mm-hmm. But what? But what happens sometimes is uh, these people. There's uh, usually paint or varnish on the hands, so it doesn't make good electrical contact. So we believe the bombs were all went off about the same time. Wow. This one had time down but failed to go off it wasn't making good electrical contact so i believe ken thought he needed to do something right then so normally what you would do is remove the blasting cap try to remove it out of the dynamite i think that's what he was trying to do and that slight movement just moved it enough so it made better electrical contact and it detonated killing ken instantly that has got to be one scary job. Yeah, I mean, you're staring down the barrel of a gun, so to speak. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but once they found that bomb, they stopped searching for any other explosive devices. So, before you know, there was nothing. Ken was killed instantly. He was very close to the explosion site. And um, so we had to continue to make sure the area was safe. Then we got the coroner down there and put Ken in a body bag. So we had, you know, there was four of us on the team. We had drove up from Fort Bragg to Quincy, Illinois, and then only three of us, you know, drove back. So that's lonely. Wow. Also, I didn't, after that bomb went off and killed Ken, another bomb threat came in at the high school. So they had to evacuate the high school. So we went to the high school and we t- contacted, you know, a few of the teachers and, pe- and like the janitors and told them to quit, you know, look at, you know, go around the building in high school to see if there's something there that's out of place that's not normally supposed to be there. Because, you know, we go into a high school, you know, we don't know what's supposed to be there and not supposed to be there. So the people that work there know better. So they did a search of the building and uh, found nothing. But... Had a couple more bomb threats come in, and then we were relieved by another EOD team from Granite City, Illinois. What was the uh, the motivation for the bombing? <clears throat> you know, I don't know that today. It was a two juveniles, teenagers, and a I think he was twenty eight year old uh, that had planted the bombs there. 
the juveniles were acquitted in trial. Uh, the 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 twenty eight year old. I'm trying to think of what his sentence was. It was a he didn't he didn't get a sentence for murder. It was for a manslaughter charge because he didn't intend to hurt anybody. He was just destroying property. I think his ex former girlfriend worked there. Um, she's the one that actually tipped off the police and turned her boy ex boyfriend in. And so basically, he had a f- spent a few years in jail. And uh, just recently, the guy who planted the bombs, his daughter contacted me. Just I mean, wow. just maybe a month or two ago. Wow. And uh, she emailed me, and she was ten years old at the time. Her dad did that, and um, she had heard stories, but she never she never knew she was knew the truth. So she emailed me and wanted to know the truth, what happened, what did her dad do, really do, and all that. So I gave her a copy of my report, and I gave her a copy of the newspaper clippings, scanned copies, and gave it to her. That was kind of interesting, being hearing from the, the guy who built the bomb's daughter. Mm. Yes. I mean, it's kind of the past coming full circle, you know, it this, is. this gentleman was killed all those years ago, Ken Foster, and, you know, it continues to haunt the people involved, you know? Yeah, her, and and the, his daughter apologized for her dad. Wow. It's, you know, it's just sorry that her dad did all that. And each one of these experiences in Vietnam and then the presidential campaign, I mean, it sounds like it was a learning experience for you as an EOD tech. And, um, and I wanted to ask you, Next, you know, how did you, you know, it's the 1970s. How did you initially hear or learn that there was some sort of new outfit being stood up, that there's some sort of counterterrorism endeavor? Now, how, how did you come to be involved in all of that? That's a good question. <laughs> I was actually getting bored with stateside EOD going down to the hand grenade range and destroying a hand grenade that somebody throw down range that forgot to pull the pin out or uh, and they would wait till the end of the day to call and say they got a dud grenade down at the end and on the hand grenade range um it, it was just getting boring stateside eod in the 1970s so i decided i wanted to go into special forces i took emt training after ken died um there was nothing I could have done even with the EMT training, but I did went through the EOD pro. I mean, the emergency medical technician program, um, and then I wanted to go to special forces as a medic. I put in a request for 91B medic special forces school, and I, it was approved, and I had a school day. Meanwhile, uh, a sergeant major at our control detachment got wind of uh, a new unit being formed up at Fort Bragg and they were looking for some EOD techs to join the unit. They wanted six EOD techs, preferably NCOs that had Vietnam experience. So the Sergeant Major gave me the phone number. I called up and talked to an admin guy at uh, Fort Bragg 
at the at the stockade, the old Butler's on Butner Road, the old stockade there on Fort Bragg, and they asked told him who I was, you know, a little bit about myself, and they said, would you want to come for an interview? And I said, sure, I'd come to. So I came to for an interview, and then two weeks later, I was assigned to this new unit being formed up at Fort Bragg. Uh, Colonel Charlie Beckwith was the commanding officer, and uh, that was the beginning of the 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta. And at what point did you get wind that, like, actually this was kind of a big deal, this unit that you just uh, volunteered for? I I, I got – with the sergeant major uh, gave me a phone number. I called, and within maybe two or three days, I had TDY orders to go to Fort Bragg for an interview. Um I went for my interview. Two weeks after the interview, I was assigned. It was uh, to the unit. That was be March of uh, 1978. I was assigned. The units formed up in uh, November of 1977 uh, on Smoke Bomb Hill. They had a old World War II um, barracks uh, that they started up then. Then they got the stockade. There was about two or three prisoners in the stockade. They put them in the county jail, Cumberland <laughs> County Jail, and uh, we took over the stockade. So it was kind of, and we had to take, you know, go in there with torches, cut out the jail cells, and re, and, and we did all the work ourselves to remodify the stockade to turn it into our uh, headquarters. What was that like those first couple of years that, you know, standing up any unit from scratch, um, you know, as I, I helped stand up, um, you know, my battalion in uh, fifth special forces group. I mean, it's, it's always a, a painful experience. Well, what was that like for you standing up this new unit and building this new capability that America didn't have at the time? Uh, it was, it was, it was really interesting. It was a, um, we, they were getting ready as soon as we got there, they were getting ready to st- uh, start the first operator training course, OTC-1. So we went through, we did the, you know, we did a 18-mile night road march, the five-event PT test, the swim test, the EOD guys that were selected to go through OTC. We did not go through the selection and assessment course that the other guys did. We just jumped in with them through the operator training course. And um, so that was like a five-month program, the operator training course. And then after we finished the operator training course, then the EOD folks that went through had to go through and pass the selection assessment course that fall, fall of 78. So we kind of did it backwards. I see. We went, to, we went to OTC. Then we went to selection and assessment. Not ever, only two of us made it through selection and assessment in OTC-1, wow. EOD types. And then we had to go to jump school. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So you did it in reverse order. We did. And uh, what, what, did it, what was OTC like at that point? I remember in, in a previous conversation, you mentioned how um, you know, a gentleman from the SAS had come down and helped teach marksmanship. And there's a lot of uh, skill sets that I've come to learn that the Brits were actually a little bit further ahead of us at that point in time. They were. Um, 
Colonel Beckworth had spent time with the British SAS, so he was, and he modeled us after the British SAS. Uh, the DCO Bucky Burris, he uh, he had actually gone through the SAS school, the complete school, and spent time with the SAS. So we were our selection assessment, our training, everything was modeled on the British SAS. We had instructors come over from the SAS and teach us marksmanship, where we learned how to double tap. The biggest thing that we we would shoot, one of the things that was funny, is that three by five cards. Our targets were three by five. I don't we we shot up a bunch of three by five cards, but. Uh, that was our main targets to hit uh, hit that small of an area. Did a lot of shooting. Usually, all all the morning was spent in some form of shooting, whether it be out in the rain shooting with forty fives or shooting with our M three grease guns. That's what we had for an assault rifle was the M three grease gun, and. And Beckwith had all of our sights cut off, our grease guns, so we had to instinctively fire. Um, so there was a lot of funny stuff. We played a lot of football for PT. Beckwith would be out there with a the whistle. You know, he, were, he was on the football team when he went to the University of Georgia. So we were out there. We would play football, throw the ball. Um, we did a lot of brick PT. And brick PT is that we had these red bricks and we would have to hold them straight out and do different exercises, arm strengthening exercises with these red bricks. Uh, it was uh, it was quite interesting. Here's Chris Peranto on the show, uh, better known by many as Tonto, if you saw 13 hours, but this is the real Tonto talking about the Benghazi attack, which he, of course, was there for, and then later on testifying before Congress to tell his story. This is what the State Department did. They, did, they, they stopped, moving, they stopped uh, assets moving towards us, and the leadership that was in charge was Hillary Clinton, Patrick Kennedy, and Charlene Lamb. They failed us. They failed the guys on the ground. The guys on the ground, Alex Scott and Dave, uh, Alec Anderson, Scott Wilkin, Dave Ubin, Greg Hicks, uh, even the ambassador had been requesting more security, and they had been attacked twice before, along with the British ambassador, who which we responded to those attacks. Well, I, two of the IDs we couldn't respond because our chief wouldn't let us go out the gate again. Uh, so that's to me, that's not political. That's just the facts. And I, I will say their names, I, and I will say yes. I don't like when Hillary Clinton says "fog of war." I see that when she says that. She does not have any idea what she's talking about. There's no fog of war in combat. There's not, period. It's When you're in the, in the mix of it, it's, everything is so vivid. It's like a sixth sense. And I do say that as well. But as far as getting into faults and blames and saying, oh, this is – I don't. I just say this is what happened. This is what I know. This is what I don't like about it. But what I try to get across people is not that. It is dealing with adversity. It's overcoming obstacles. I, I mean, geez, I saw Roan and Bub get blown up right in front of me. I mean, I, that was the one moment that I was like, holy crap, we just, I just lost my buddies. Yeah. And for 30, you know, for about five seconds, my head, I remember my head dropped and I went, damn. And then God kicked me in the back of the head to get your gun back up. And that's where I, was, I started to say, hey, overcoming obstacles when something bad is put in front of you, 
you've got to dig deep and you've got to fight through it. That's what the speaking's about, and that's what I think Benghazi should be about. But, brother, politics are part of it because politicians failed us, and politician, the failure of politicians, whether it was nefarious or whether it was just because they were made, made bad mistakes, to me it doesn't make a difference. They failed us. It cost guys' lives. And now, why well, I think I get a little bit more political is because now, and now Hillary Clinton, now a lot of people on the left have the nerve to call Pat Smith a liar, to call Katie Quigley, Glenn's sister, a liar, to call Cheryl and, and uh, Charles Woods liars for being told that this was due to a video and, and all of that. So that's, that's what's kind of pulled me more out of being a political now and being more political because that's, you, you lost everything and, and you have the nerve to call family members who lost sons, sacrificing themselves, fighting for freedoms, and you have the nerve to call them liars on national TV to a public audience. That, it just, that burns me up. It really does. So um, that's why I'm getting a little bit more political nowadays. If you had, if you were able to sit down with one of these people that you named, Hillary Clinton and some of these other, <laughs> uh, congress, the congressional leadership, um, and if you were able to sit down with them and ask them, one question or a series of questions. Who would you who would you direct that to, and what would be your uh, line of questioning to them? Well, you know, you know, I I would sit down and I would. It would be it, it have you have to start at the top. I mean, there's nobody else. Uh, I had a you so you got to start with the State Department. You got to start up top with Hillary Clinton, uh, and you got and I would ask her. So why did you why did you turn assets down that were coming towards us? Why did you shut them down? Why did you shut that fifteen down uh, when they were getting prepositioned and moving to Sigonella? Why did you not why did you tell the DOD to not spin up, not continue to spin up the F-15s and F-16s out of Alviano Air Base in Suda Bay and not let them come? What was the reasoning there? And if I didn't get a good answer or something that I, it's, you can, you can, t- people, <laughs> I don't know why people can't just see it on TV. You can tell when somebody's not telling the truth or telling a half truth. And that would just burn another line of questioning. Um, also, it would be, it would be, why did you say we didn't lose anybody in Libya? I remember when she said that, I got an email from, from, uh, from Ty's mom. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because she asked me to keep it. You know, I, I remember I'm not, she asked me to keep, keep it, for the most part, keep it private. But there was one part, and I asked her if I could say this and on, t- on TV or radio or whatever, and she said it was okay. And, and her first line was, just, so, Miss Clinton, this, my son's life doesn't mean anything. Obviously, he didn't matter because nobody died in Libya. That's the sort of things that, that really bother me because when politicians say stupid stupid things like that then they have no idea the repercussions of what it does to the family members and i've seen that and i've seen that with pat smith too and i want to say do you have no honestly i want to ask do you have no soul yeah. do you have no heart that's that would be a question too <laughs> that, I was, that makes me wonder like the congressional committee that they did the hearing with hillary clinton i feel like that could have been so much more effective yeah. if they had someone like yeah. you up there asking these questions because i think to the average you know viewer watching fox news or whatever that this is just a bunch of old congressmen talking to yeah. hillary clinton and and i think it'd be so much more powerful if you had you and the rest of the guys who wrote the book 13 hours asking those questions i i i completely agree with you um but politicians and and I do I, I think honestly I do think Trey Gowdy's doing a very good job. He's keeping it, and it's not letting it turn into a circus, which is yeah. what a, a lot of the Democrats wanted. They wanted it to turn into a keeping up with the Kardashians reality show yep. type circus, so they could invalidate it. Um, he's keeping it as professional as he can. But you're you're exactly right. I think a lot of the questions could have been more aggressive, could have been tougher, and 
again, just like Mitt Romney's campaign, <laughs> the, the Republicans took the high road, and and it, they could have made it a lot more a lot more aggressive. But again, hey, that's politics. I don't agree with politics. I don't want to be a politician. I don't like how they do business um, because I think a lot of times it's, it's scratching each other's back, whether Republican or Democrat. But um, you know that's their realm. That's what they did. I testified and I said what I needed to say behind closed doors. I was treated with respect. I'll say that. Uh, even the uh, even the Democrats, uh, especially uh, Congresswoman Duckworth, um, she used to fly Apache helicopters for me when I was at Ranger School. Wow. She came down and personally thanked me. I mean, it, so I. I my testimony actually was very respectful by the congressmen the, uh, and congresswomen. The counsel for the Democrats, they tried to, they tried to play some games. I was, I was a little bit uh, – that's tough because you got kids. you got lawyers that are real young, uh, very, very pretentious, and, and uh, it, it's a, it's a little bit, gets a little bit snotty in there, a little bit snobby. But it, it was par for the course. I was used to it, so I was able to – handle my own but the con and like i said i'm gonna tell, tell everybody the congressmen and women and and the majority of them did show up for my hearing even though it was behind closed doors all of them were very respectful this is a remarkable story um from an earlier episode with ivan castro now ivan lost his eye in combat and continued to serve actually in the army special forces and went on to actually run marathons. Could you believe that? So here it is in his own words. What a story. So fighting blind, yeah. How did I get hurt? I got hurt on September 2nd, 2006, and I was a platoon leader for a a sniper platoon. And I was on a rooftop in 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 Iraq, a place called Yusufia. I had just relieved my guys, and mortar rounds came in, and... One landed um, off the roof, and the next one landed five feet to my left. And uh, the round uh, just tore through my body and unfortunately killed two guys in my unit. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit, Ivan, also about like what that process was like when you got hurt? And then um, I, I take it you were like evacuated to the hospital in Germany? Yes, I was. So it, you know, immediately still under, under uh, enemy fire, um, my guys, the rest of my guys on my on my team jumped up on the rooftop. They pulled me over to the side, got me off the rooftop, provided first aid, and um, once the the firefight ended, uh, they called in medevac aircrafts, and I uh, was transported to Balad, and then from there to Longstuhl, Germany, and then from Longstuhl to Walter Reed, and finally Bethesda Naval Medical Center, where I spent several weeks in ICU. And uh, you know the mortar round had had just torn through me. It, it uh, broke my nose, shattered my right cheekbone, and nucleated my right eye. Flung shrapnel in my left. I had a bilobe aneurysm of the left vertebral artery. Lungs collapsed. Open bone uh, fracture of the humerus. Deltoid muscle torn. Pulmonary embolism. Amputated finger, and and a whole bunch of other open wounds. You know due to shrapnel. He's got, he, he has the, the medical records on, you know, his injuries. I mean, no exaggeration. They fill about 20 feet of files. Um, he got intense care just on the battlefield. And, um, and then once he got to the hospital, he, you know, went through, I don't know, how many surgeries did you go through, Ivan? Any, uh, any guess? 
uh, it was it was over 40 uh, you know it was just you know doing one surgery let that heal doing another um you know right after that one so it was surgery after surgery after surgery but uh you know i i've got to always thank um it was, it was a team effort from all branches of service and uh from the men on the ground to the, the pilots the the medics on the aircraft you know the air force folks uh transformed me over uh the navy doctors you know and and marines at bethesda so it's it was a combined effort and it's amazing our 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 modern military medicine is just cutting edge you know so it's i'm alive because of them it's sure. fascinating i mean it's it's incredible because i mean these are the injuries that probably would have killed a soldier in years past um but i mean we have these you know medical training and medical technology today that can just do some incredible things yeah it's absolutely right yeah it's and and just with the speed and so it was it was great it was I I I gotta say I received the best care I I surely did. So I was gonna say that uh, you know looking through your book uh, Ivan I know that what what got you through this is that you had one goal and that was to run a marathon and and of course get back in into combat which you did which is incredible in itself and I'd love to hear about um, running a marathon especially for. You know, being legally blind now, I know that you have someone there guiding you along the way has to be an incredibly hard thing to do. And since then, you've done two dozen, including the Boston Marathon where you were in 2013. And I want to hear about that. But just the process of of running that first marathon, how tough was it? Uh, How did you get to the point where you were able to actually do it? And, you know, how does it compare to the rucksack marches that you did in the Army? Yeah. You know, uh, when you lose your sight, uh, you you're we live in such a bubble that we don't know. You know, if you lose your legs, you don't know anything about prosthetics, or if you have a spinal cord injury or cancer. And it's not until that point in time that you come to realize that, hey, wow, um, you get smart on that, and your family gets smart on it too. And I didn't know anything about blindness, and you know, I. I saw, I had overheard a resident and a Navy nurse talking about the Marine Corps Marathon shortly after I was in the hospital and came to, and I, I didn't have any goals for being blind, because, you know, they had just told me, and and that, that process was long and hard, and, and, and once again, it's my physical therapist, my occupational therapist, my family, and just friends that decided to help me on this mission, this new mission I had, which was my first mission, you know, uh, after getting injured was to, uh, have all my, you know, my thought process was to get over all my surgeries in one year. And the doctors, they just laughed at me, said, that's not going to happen. This is not going to be a one year process. And and when I told them that I wanted to run the Marine Corps marathon, they looked at me and, you know, they, they said, sure. You know, they, they just encouraged me, but they, they really didn't believe that, that it was going to get accomplished. So I, I doubled up on my physical therapy, my occupational therapy, and and resistance training, and from going of, of being bed bound and having two people stand me up for two seconds because I had lost so much muscle in my legs, to be able to line up in the Marine Corps Marathon and, and run that, and and I just want to let you know it's, you know, since uh, that first Marine Corps Marathon in 2007, I've I ran over um, close to 60 marathons now and. 
and two fifty milers. So it, it's been yeah, it's been uh, more than two over two dozen, close to close to sixty. How, how yeah, long did and, it take you to get there to you know recover from your injuries enough that you were able to participate in a marathon? It was so I got hurt on September second, two thousand six, and I ran uh, the the Army ten miler and the Marine Corps marathon the next October, so October two thousand seven. <laughs> That's and, unbelievable. <laughs> and uh, and you know what? It's everybody. You know they give they praise me for being able to do that, but it's a team effort. I, I could have not done it if it wasn't for great friends uh, and family that that supported me on that and guided me the whole way. And and you're right. You know I did run Boston on uh, 2013, and um, yeah, it was it was such an experience. And I was about half a mile from the finish line when when the bombs went off and all the chaos and commotion. And uh, at that time, you know, your instinct uh, just, you know, you, you, that switch turns on, man. And, and it's like you want to run towards, towards the gunfire, you know, and see what you could do. And then you realize, man, I'm blind. You know, what can I do? Uh, and, and it was just, you know, the guys, I was with two good friends of mine, um, Colonel Mike Sullivan and Colonel uh, Fred Dumore, just two great SF just warriors and and those guys you know they said hey there's too much chaos and commotion and um you know we're not in the right protective protective posture uh you know we just had shorts and t-shirts man but uh you know we we decided it was just best to to boogie on out of there and and help in what we could on the way out you know so we were fortunate to get out of there on time we really hope that you enjoyed hearing these stories there's some tragic stuff there, but also some inspiring words, I have to say. And it was a real honor to talk to everybody who was a part of this show um, on previous shows and, and getting their story. It's great to re-air some of that audio, especially for those who haven't heard it. And you guys could dig back and, and hear those full interviews. Uh, here's the Harley Davidson way of helping our military enjoy some two wheels freedom. The Freedom Promise. It means the price you pay on a newer used street or sportster model is the money you get back on trade. That's right, buy an eligible model and you'll get your purchase price back on trade within one year from date of purchase. Harley Davidson, all for freedom, freedom for all. Excludes tax, title, fee, and extras not available in all states. Check with your local Harley Davidson dealer. And we'll be back as always. Follow us on Soft Rep Radio at Soft Rep Radio on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks to the fine people at Harley Davidson. And keep checking out the podcast channel for all new episodes twice every week. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at SoftRep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.